Welcome to the Corlin Economics Report, a weekly look at financial and political topics relating to asset-based investing. Guests on this program pay no fees to appear, and guests and hosts disclose any equity interest in companies profiled. Now, the Corlin Economics Report. Hey, everyone. Welcome in to the weekend edition of the KE Report. Corey and Chad here, your host for this weekend's edition. Also, your host on our website, kereport.com, our podcast, The KE Report, and now also posting a number of our interviews on YouTube. Just search The KE Report. On this weekend show, we're going to start off by focusing on the resource sector and a commodity that is running, as well as a couple that I think a lot of investors are wondering if they are going to rebound. Start some uptrends here. We are chatting with Rick Rule, founder of Rule Investment Media. Rick, it's always great having you on the show and always enjoyable to talk about a number of different sectors. Last time we had you on the show about a month ago, we focused more on precious metals. Now we're going to take a step aside and look at some other sectors, starting with kind of the one bright light for resource investors recently. That's been uranium. Uranium is over $100 a pound on the spot market. It's essentially gone vertical from August of last year, but it really put in a floor back in, let's say, 2016, 2017, and has been moving higher. It's this vertical nature recently, though, that has a lot of investors wondering, is this too far too fast for uranium? Where do we go from here? So, Rick, big picture view on the uranium sector, first and foremost, please. Two parts to the big picture view. With regards to junior resource speculators, the easy money has been made in the equities. When a commodity goes from hated to tolerated, uh, to admired, to loved, the easy money has been made. Uh, And if you are a near-term trader, uh, at the very least, take your money out of the market uh, and uh, maintain an interest that is already paid for uh, with your profits. I've done that. I've sold enough of my basket of juniors that although I still have a lot of stock, I have no cost, no basis in the juniors. But I think there are structural changes uh, around the uranium market. uh, And I think the need for power, particularly electricity, that doesn't come with carbon or particulate pollution generation. I think those two things mean that perhaps for careful investors, while the easy money has been made, the big money is ahead. It is highly likely, according to the World Nuclear Association, that in the next 12 to 15 years, the demand for uranium, basic uranium and uranium enrichment services will double in the very near term, which is to say the five to six year time frame, uh, we don't have the ability to increase production that fast. Estimates of the current supply deficit range from 30 million pounds to a high of 70 million pounds. My own guess is somewhere in the middle of that. And we have the ability through restarts at Cameco and Kazatomprom to address uh, within the two to three year time frame between 30 and 35 million pounds of that shortfall. The difficulty becomes <laughs> in years three through seven, how do you uh, address the rest of the shortfall? Because although the uranium price, at least in the spot market, is well north, well above the incentive price needed to bring new mines into production, you don't bring new mines into production overnight. It takes years, sometimes decades, 
to permit them, to finance them, and to build them. Meanwhile, there are 68 large reactors under construction around the world, and between 110 and 150 in various stages of uh, permitting and financing. So the demand for uranium is continuing, and it's continuing inexorably. There are going to be, uh, I think, without a doubt, supply shortages. I don't think the supply shortages occur in 2024. I think there's ample, ample above ground inventory to get us through 2024. Doesn't mean there won't be a, sp a price spike, but there doesn't need to be. But for a, a few structural reasons, investors in uranium equities who are willing to do the work can look forward to a very good decade. Well, Rick, it would be nice to have you uh, weigh in on when we see people talking about the uranium sector, they're normally referencing the spot market price, but really the action for the mining companies happens with term contracting and the long-term offtake agreements. We hadn't seen that in a long time. We've been waiting for it. It's finally started. Could you speak to that nature of how companies are getting positioned in the term contracts and why we're finally gaining some traction on that front? Corey, that's the crux of the matter, uh, and I'm glad you framed it like that. First of all, three years ago, most of the volume took place in the spot market, but the spot market has dried up to the extent, and this is an interesting quip, there is often more volume in the spot physical uranium trust, a spot derivative, than there is in the spot market. In fact, I jokingly now say that the spot market is more important than the spot market, and that changes a lot of things. Investors look at the uranium market through the prism of the spot price, and the spot price is increasingly irrelevant to both buyers and sellers of uranium. The action is taking place on the term market. The good news about the term market is that both uh, suppliers and consumers of uranium, unlike any other commodity in the world, can enter into contracts that give them some price and supply stability. For producers, if you have a credit grade, uh, investment grade counterparty in a term contract, it means that you have some certainty as to your minimum expected revenues. And there's visibility associated with that certainty if, as a supplier, you are willing to share it. Many suppliers aren't for competitive reasons. If you are a provider of capital, let's say debt capital to build a uranium mine, and you have certainty revenue certainty with regards to the sales price of a proportion of the product that you sell, it makes it much easier to understand how your loan is going to be paid off, and it can lower the cost of capital for uh, companies. Similarly, to the extent that companies are able to secure long-term, flexible term market contracts, it, it will make it much easier for equity analysts to do forecasts around revenues, margins, and free cash flows, and will increase the certainty that investors feel with regards to uranium equities. The downside of all this is that it's fairly opaque, which means that you have to do some work. As an example, when you're looking at Cameco's quarterlies, you have to look at the pounds produced, the realized price per pound, the realized cost per pound. They aren't sharing the details of their contracts. My suspicion is that five years from now, they will be sharing the data around these contracts because it'll materially decrease their cost of living. But intelligent uranium investors are going to have to do some sleuthing work 
for the next three or four or five years to get a competitive advantage against other investors who are operating the same place. Mercifully, for guys like me who are willing to do the work, most investors' technique has got a hunch better bunch. In other words, they pay attention to narrative rather than arithmetic, which leaves, I think, a real competitive advantage to people who understand the uranium market for what it is and who are willing to do the work. So, Rick, diving into the companies, then I want to talk jurisdiction. Are you or do you think investors should be more focused on U.S. or North American focused companies like those in Canada, even in the Athabasca, or even look to some other jurisdictions? Uh, I think that the American U.S. companies will have an advantage in terms of the cost of capital because U.S. equities markets are the most developed equity markets in terms of liquidity in the world. And U.S. uh, equity markets are underserved with regards to resource issuers in direct contrast to Canada. The the difficulty with the U.S. producers is materiality. The amount of uranium that UEC and the other sort of mid-tier American juniors can produce and the amount of gross revenues that they can generate gives them a materiality issue. They will have access to very low cost of capital, uh, including gifts, if that's the right phrase, from the U.S. taxpayer, and they will generate amazing trading liquidity, as they already do on U.S. exchanges, and as a consequence, enjoy a lower cost of capital. The difficulty is that it's very hard for me to see total uranium production in the U.S. exceed 12 million pounds. There are other individual mines in the world that will exceed that number. So it really depends on what you want to do. If you want to trade stocks that have liquidity uh, and have built-in non-market advantages, then the United States is your place. There is a certain certainty to the United States. Uh, If you are looking for more quantum upside, I think you have to look to the Athabasca Basin in Canada. You have to look for a basin, look to a basin that can uh, deliver extraordinarily high-grade deposits uh, in what is, and I mean Saskatchewan rather than Canada, uh, a better political jurisdiction than the United States. Uh, I hope that distinction is clear to your viewers. I'm not suggesting that Canada is a better investment jurisdiction than the United States. I'm suggesting that Saskatchewan is the best uh, resource investment destination uh, in Canada. And I really like Saskatchewan as a domicile uh, for resource investments. Well, Rick, this brings up an interesting point about the different stages of the uranium stocks. The ones that have run, really, if you look back since 2020, the pandemic crashed low to present, a lot of them are up 10x, 20x. Uh, and then just in the last year, some of them up 3x, 4x. But those are the more developed companies, some that are near-term producers, some going into production this year. There's a lot of explorers, though, and some that are just building resources that haven't moved yet. Do you see an edge on those earlier stage companies now that some of the big boys have run? I don't for most of them. I suspect there's about 80 development stage companies, and I suspect 11 or 12 are viable. I think over the next two years, you're going to see a separation of the wheat from the chaff. Of course, with the distribution of paradigm (laughs) and what passes for information on social media, there are probably a lot of $15 million market cap pretenders that will become 100 million market cap pretenders, which is to say that the flotsam and jetsam uh, will rise with the real product. Uh, 
speculators need to take note. Corey, you have an early memory of the last bull market in uranium. In the last bull market in uranium, we went from at the beginning of the cycle of having five juniors to at the end of the cycle having 500 juniors. I'm not sure that we're going to surpass that level of idiocy. We probably aren't, but it's important to note that of those 500 juniors that polluted the investment atmosphere of that uranium bull market, uh, at most there were 25 that were viable and investors should have known. Much of the hatred that the uranium space enjoys today is a consequence of ill-informed investors who bought uranium at the top at $145 a pound and wrote it all the way down to 10. And by the way, wrote it down to 10 in corporate wrappers, which is to say junior shells, that didn't have any uranium except as a heading on a share certificate. Oh, we've seen that before in many different sectors, and especially when we're in markets like this here, Rick, where a lot of the other resource sectors are struggling. Everybody seems to follow price, and that means a lot of new uranium companies Let's use this as a time to switch over to another metal where I think we have already seen some companies bail on it and move into uranium, that being silver. Silver very much stuck in a range broadly above $20 an ounce, which is higher than prices really from 2014 through 2020, but it's been boring for investors. I know just how much our audience thinks that silver should be providing that torque to the upside. It can really get running maybe when gold breaks out. The problem is silver has been stuck in this range, even putting in lower highs. Rick, what do you think about silver as an investment at these levels? Well, let's start with the phrase boring. Uh, At age 71, I love boredom. It's an antidote to terror. So the fact that that people are bored by it implies at least one thing to me, which is to say it's out of favor, much like uranium was in 2022. The narrative around silver is such that people have paid attention to its explosive upside, as have I. Uh, I've, in fact, experienced it. And what happens is that when people get attracted to the silver narrative, and they have the expectation of the explosive upside, uh, I'm talking about, as an example, the Reddit silver squeeze in 2021, the wrong class of speculator gets involved for the wrong reason. Uh, And when they get disappointed, which is inevitable, there is no hatred so fervent as the hatred of a jilted lover. And so the silver market, I would say, perversely benefits from this level of abject hate, which makes it perversely for me uh, an ideal place to play. Their hatred doesn't change the narrative. Their hatred doesn't change the fact that three times in my career, I've seen bull markets in silver that were absolutely preposterous generators of wealth. What it means is that uh, until that moment repeats itself, which I believe it will, uh, I don't have much competition on the bid, which I like. Let's review a few of the facts around silver. When People look at silver and they say that the current price of silver doesn't justify the cost of production. They're only right with regards to primary silver production, that is to say silver produced from silver mines, which is something less than 18% of total supply. Most of the supply of silver comes from recycling or comes as a consequence of byproduct of copper, lead, zinc, or gold mining. 
which means that at least with regard to the byproduct production from other mines, the price of copper is less important. The price of silver, pardon me, is less important <clears throat> to the production numbers than the price and volumes of other material. What you are seeing here with low silver prices is a reduction uh, in recycling and recycling capacity because at $25 silver, you can't, as an example, recycle many so solar panels, which are the repository of a lot of already produced silver. So you are beginning to see supply decreases, but not in a place where the silver bowls, if you will, will see it, will see it because they haven't done the work. You are seeing a strong surge in underlying fabrication demand for silver uh, around solar and around biomedical. Silver is a fantastic germicide. And there's an expectation this year that uh, well over a billion ounces will be used in fabrication. And therefore, a substantial part will be off the market, even with the ultimate recycling that occurs in some industries. What's important to understand, I think, is that, and I can't tell you why, for silver to move, gold has to move first. The precious metals narrative historically has been driven by gold. When the narrative around precious metals uh, begins to attract the generalist investor, they come in the lowest stress names, which is to say physical gold and then the established gold producer. And it's only after the momentum, the price momentum, the price verification has occurred in gold that the silver narrative takes hold. But in my experience, once the silver narrative does take hold, uh, I think because the lower unit cost of silver as opposed to gold and the ability of more people around the world to participate uh, in the silver market, silver moves further and silver moves faster than gold after that's been established. When will this occur? I don't know. Why am I willing to wait if I don't know? Because three times before in my career, uh, I've gone, got truly quantum moves out of silver. As a very young man in the 1970s, I watched, sadly without participating, Coeur d'Alene go from 10 cents to $65. In the early part of the decade of the 90s, I backed both Silver Standard and Pan American Silver and watched them go from 72 cents and 50 cents, respectively, to $45. Those moves, Corey, got my interest. And if I have to wait two or three years for a basket of stocks to give me returns that are somewhere between 300% and 1,000%, I'm very willing to do that. The time value of money involved in being three years early becomes inconsequential given the scope of the gain. Many people who compete with me or could compete with me don't seem to have the financial or psychological wherewithal to wait uh, or to suffer the volatility in the interim, which, to be honest with you, Corey, delights me. Well, Rick, you've often said you've stayed around for the pain. Now stay around for the gains. And you've also said that you uh, love hate. So with the silver market setting up that way, it reminds me a lot of what we just talked about with uranium, where there was a long wait. Uh, people complained if you were early, but then the payoff is there. We're drilling down into silver companies, though, 
as you mentioned, a lot of polymetallic. So some are zinc companies and lead companies and copper companies with silver in drag. How do you suss out which silver companies can have that upside torque when there's so many other metals involved? Materiality works for me. I think that you need to have at least uh, an in situ recoverable reserve and resource target in excess of 100 million ounces of silver. I don't care very much about small deposits, uh, even small high-grade deposits. It's true that you can make money on them, but the probability of making enough money to overcome the time value of money and the risk is too low for me. So I have a materiality threshold. I look for deposits that I think will be in the best cash cost quartile among silver companies. Uh, In other words, I'm personally less interested in the leverage to the silver price than I used to be. I used to look for higher cost deposits that would give me more leverage to the price upside. But that's a fairly common technique now. So I'm looking perhaps to lower my ultimate expected return in return for giving up a whole bunch of risk by looking for companies that are in the lowest cash quartile that I see in the business. I'm looking for companies that have the probability of delivering top quartile return on capital employed, but at any rate, capital employed in excess of 25% at current silver prices. I look too for management teams that are exploring in known silver districts. I don't think that you need to reinvent the wheel here. I think that you need to use modern technology to look for deposits undercover in terrain that have already produced a lot of silver. Now, for me, principally, that means uh, Mexico, Peru, Poland, uh, and were I allowed to, Russia. (laughs) Those are places that produce silver uh, in the size and in the sort of quantum I talk about. And I like to be involved with people who have been uh, quite successful, hopefully, in silver before, but at least uh, in terms of epithermal or mesothermal silver deposits. When you go through that whole exercise, you are left with a universe of, uh, you know, probably on the outside 15 companies. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that if we get a run in silver from 22 or $23 to some number north of 50, that that rising tide won't float all boats. I'm not suggesting either that there aren't more extravagant gains to be made in the more marginal silver companies. What I'm saying is that for me, by following a sober course of action, I'm willing to trade some of my potential upside for eliminating most of my probable downside. (laughs) I want higher quality names. To that point, then let's talk about stages of projects then. Because recently, look, we all know how expensive it has been to actually build a mine. Even exploration costs are going higher. So how do you decipher and what do you favor over mines that are built that we have at least some economics, hard economics on in terms of costs, those in construction or development, and those simply still exploring? The ones that are in production seem to have very little price built in for appreciation. 
what you have to do is wrap your heads around political risk, operating risk, and financial risk. So let's look at a couple of them just for fun. Hoth shields uh, in Peru. You have to look at some fairly disastrous operating and capital allocation decisions over the last 10 years. Uh, if that is behind them, uh, as an example, with uh, investor sentiment around their rare earth spinoff, they are veteran explorers in uh, a spectacular silver jurisdiction. And at present, they enjoy a fairly good relationship with the government of Peru. Moving north to Peñoles, I think you see a company that is roundly hated by the political establishment in that country. Uh, and, and you see a country that has decided to c- declare war on prosperity by looking at uh, banning open pit mining and by stealing the nation's lithium industry. So the superb mineral endowment that you have and, and the wonderful labor pool that you have in Mexico, the spectacular infrastructure that you have in Mexico is beginning to be leavened by the political idiocy uh, that you see in Mexico. You need to take all that into account. Moving uh, on to other companies, Pan American Silver is no longer really a pan, is no longer really a silver company. About 42, 43% of the revenue comes from silver. I own Pan American because it still has great leverage to silver. But what investors need, really need to look at with at Pan American Silver is their ability to upgrade the portfolio that they bought from Yamana focusing on a few good mines and selling off the rest to strengthen their balance sheet, which, by the way, they've done and need to continue to do. But it also uh, has an awful lot to do with their ability to bring either Guatemala or Argentina into production. Pan American is unique among purported silver companies that they have two deposits, uh, one in Guatemala and one in Argentina, probably with an excess of 500 million ounces of high-quality reserves each. In other words, if they got political go-ahead to uh, start the Argentine operation or restart the Guatemalan operation, either mine would double the company's silver output. So, you know, uh, obviously that's worth looking at. If you have the courage to go down into the independent producers, if you believe, uh, as an example, that First Majestic can solve the problems that they're encountering at Jarrett Canyon, you have a management team that has a lot of torque to silver and has a, a lot of access to potential, to potential silver. But they have a real challenge on their hands at Jarrett Canyon. Keith Newmeyer and his team have had challenges at other big cash-starved mines before. And I'm not saying they can't do it. But I think when you look at a company like First Majestic, you care less about the silver price in the near term, and you care more about their ability to fix the problems that they have at Jarrett Canyon. With Silvercrest, you have a very damaged franchise uh, as a consequence of their bringing a mine in on time, on budget, but with very large discrepancies with regards to reserve and resources. You have the same thing at Gatos. Both companies are producing well. Both companies are generating a lot of cash. Both companies are paying down debt. Now you need to reconcile the net present value of the deposits based on their resources with any belief that you might have in their ability to add back some of the ounces that they lost through better exploration. MAG would seem to be the outlier in terms of having no production problems and no resource shortfalls. 
coming down uh, into the explorers, which is what I'm beginning to do because they're so roundly hated, what really matters to me is materiality. You know, I really want companies with in situ recoverable reserves and resources at current silver prices to be worth in excess of two or two and a half billion US dollars, which is to say 100 million recoverable reserves and resource ounces or better. I really truly want materiality. I'm willing myself to play very big conceptual targets with people who are prior successes in large-scale exploration. I'm not willing to talk about those because the probability of that is failure. And while I'm willing to risk my capital, I'm not willing to risk my reputation on a show where people would buy it simply because Rick said to buy it. I hope that covers the waterfront reasonably well for you. Well, Rick, just one more follow-up on some of the Silver Juniors. Uh, you don't have to name names here as they are smaller, but you know, there's most of the wealth of silvers in Mexico and South America, as you pointed out. But there are some North American zones in Nevada, originally known for silver, in the Silver Valley of Idaho, and also in the Golden Triangle, and also in Ontario in the Silver Cobalt Camps, where there are some juniors that are defining bigger resources finally. Do any of those catch your interest, or do you just stick to the Latin American countries? I would be attracted to the Silver Valley if I saw something that indicated 100 million ounces of resource, given the extraordinary infrastructure there uh, and given the silver miners. What you have to overcome there is the legacy environmental problem. They have been mining silver lead zinc ores there and the tailings have been unsurfaced for 100 years. The precipitation interacts with sulfide tailings forms a dilute sulfuric acid, which leaches lead into the soil in the river. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> I, I think the Comstock's best days are probably behind it, uh, although I would love to see somebody tag a vein there that had 100 million ounces. I am attracted to Dolly Varden silver up in the Golden Triangle. Uh, I like those people. I like some of the grade. I like the potential to tie together their deposits to see 100 million ounces, but I can't see 100 million ounces yet. And I've seen nothing in cobalt. Uh, I, I mean, I've seen great grade, but I've seen nothing in cobalt to suggest that anybody has their hands on a deposit which could conceivably become a 100 million ounce deposit. So I have real materiality concerns with everything I see in the United States and Canada. Okay. Thank you, Rick. Moving on. One more uh, resource sector that we want to talk about is nickel. You've been on record saying nickel is uh, contrary in play right now. We've actually had a couple of guests saying, look, the nickel sector, well, there is this whole green narrative around it and prices did move a lot higher. It was about two years ago now. Unfortunately, it's uh, pulled back quite a bit. The nickel sector and the nickel price and a lot of the nickel companies continue to struggle what do you like about nickel here? What I like about nickel is the fact that it is essential for the ascent of humankind. It's a, a critical component of stainless steel. It's a critical component of batteries. It's a critical component of electrical equipment. So demand for nickel will continue to grow for my lifetime. For the record, I'm a healthy 71-year-old. What I really like about it is that it's falling in price for very predictable reasons. And the end of those predictable reasons is reasonably on, in sight. The reasons that it's falling in price are really twofold. 
the most acute has been the incredible increase in lateritic nickel production in Indonesia and the Philippines. I very recently flew over the laterite nickel mines in southern Sulawesi in the Philippines and saw firsthand the absolutely stupendous degree of environmental damage that's taking place as a consequence of that production. While I don't expect a hiatus in that production, I don't expect that production to grow for more than two years. I, I think that there will be literally a popular revolt uh, in Indonesia against those activities. And I think that there'll be uh, an increasing backlash among the consumers of goods that require nickel when the truth of the environmental degradation associated with that lateritic nickel production becomes as apparent as it was to me. Uh, the second reason for decreasing nickel prices is the same that we experienced in 90 and 1990 and 1991, which is to say the Russians need money. And when the Russians need money, they sell everything that they have that has a bid. Much of the current weakness in the nickel price and the platinum and palladium price is due simply to the Russian dishoarding. When the Russian dishoarding is empty, which will occur when they run out of material that they can sell, the selling pressure <laughs> involuntarily will be off. And you'll see the same sort of price increase that you saw in 1992. So I, I think that the outlook for the nickel industry will be very different two and a half years from now than it is today. This will be the time when the astute capitalists in the mining business begin to warehouse sulfide nickel assets understanding that they won't get paid for this strategy until 26 or 27, but then they'll be paid extravagantly. You are seeing, as an example, very deep-pocketed miners, Glencore is an example, shuttering uh, nickel production, most recently in New Caledonia. You're seeing really, truly the demise of the Western Australia, Western Australian sulfide nickel production. So the cuts now, uh, metaphorically, have gone through the skin, through the muscle, and they're going into the bone. The industry is in the process of liquidation, despite the fact that humankind needs the material. This is the ideal setup for me. Is this a 2024 setup? For most speculators, no. Although if I could get good assets, for me, yes. Will 2025 be the right year? Probably not. My suspicion is that 2026 will scream. Do many of your listeners have the ability to endure uh, two years of volatility, boredom, and terror? Probably not. Well, Rick, I think that's a great point that you have to have a longer time horizon if you want some of these mega trends to play out. But just dialing it down into the nickel stocks, it's really hard to say something is a nickel stocks because they often appear with platinum and palladium or uh, copper, it's often polymetallic. How do you play the companies, the big polymetallic companies or some of the development well, stage companies? You know, platinum and palladium, I'm very bullish on too. But but again, I think the thesis takes a couple of years to play out. The platinum and palladium prices are collapsing precisely because the Russians have to sell. Um, <laughs> they have to, they need the money. Uh, you know, in case you haven't followed them, there's a guns and butter circumstance there. They're trying to improve the standard of living for their citizenry at the same time they make war. We tried that in the United States in the 1960s. It didn't have a happy ending. It's called the 1970s. And when the Russians run out of material to sell, the price will begin to rebound. But that'll take a couple years to recover. Uh, you, uh, the question that you ask, uh, again, involves 
materiality. I, I don't want a, a Me Too platinum product. I don't want a Me Too nickel product. There will be groups of cap- capitalists who buy the shuttered operations that are being shed by the major mining companies now. And those are material operations. There's a great Greenfields nickel opportunity being advanced by the Friedland family, the Kabanga uh, nickel deposit, which has been around for 30 years, ironically discovered by Roman Schlanke uh, out of Vancouver 30 something years ago. That probably isn't gonna give us any joy in 2024, 2025. I suspect it'll give us major joy in 2026. Similarly, in the platinum and palladium, (laughs) the senior member of the Friedland family, Robert Friedland, is proceeding with all due haste, if you understand that joke, with a platinum, palladium, and nickel mine in South Africa called the Platte Reef, probably the most profound new source of platinum in 100 years. That stock, uh, Ivanhoe, will depend in the near term on his ability to de-bottleneck his copper operations in Congo. But in the longer term, uh, you see a major nickel stock in the making. So the truth of all that is that investment strategies around nickel, platinum, and palladium, or speculative strategies around nickel, platinum, and palladium are fairly nuanced and will probably only be useful to investors who are willing to do the risk and who are willing to accept uncertainty of outcome and uncertainty of time in the quest for quantum returns. If if there were peace in the world, all an investor would need to know about nickel, platinum, and palladium is Norilsk, the big Russian producer. That would be all you would need to know. The whole rest of the game would be an afterthought. If you happen to have investors who have access to and the courage to own Russian stocks in Russia, Norilsk is, from a global perspective, the whole game. All right, Rick, look, we've covered a lot of different sectors here. I now want to just focus on a couple of events that you are hosting through Rural Investment Media. The first one coming Saturday, April 20th. It's the Prospect Generators Boot Camp. Now, this is a virtual event. It happens all day, 8 a.m. Pacific time. It starts, runs to 4 p.m. I will post a link to this event and another one that we will talk about. But give us a little insights on this Prospector Generators Boot Camp that you're hosting. Exploration is very out of favor, Corey. (laughs) And I think that we're going to have a spectacular exploration market in the next three or four years. And the most efficient way for investors and speculators to participate in the exploration market is through the prospect generators. Companies that understand that mineral exploration isn't an asset-rich game, but rather a knowledge game, somewhat akin to technology. Prospect generators use technical acumen uh, and perhaps commercial or political acumen to develop large-scale geological theses stake the theses and propose a methodology to test the theses and then bring in third parties to do the financial heavy lifting. The idea with a prospect generator is metaphorically that you buy a large bag of partial lottery tickets where the lottery ticket has been paid for by somebody else, not putting all your eggs in one basket, but rather by generating the ideas that build the basket. Statistically, and I know statistics are boring, but I'm boring. I have participated in about 70 prospect generators 
during my time as a speculator. And the consequence of that is that I participated in 22 economic discoveries in 35 years with the prospect generators, which is to say I've had a success rate approaching 30% in an industry where the expectation of success is one in 3,000. It is, it being prospect generators, is simply statistically the most attractive way to participate as a speculator in the exploration business. Prospect generators, because they attract capital from three th from third parties, have to dilute less. Because they have to dilute less, they finance less. Because they finance less, they don't get fo followed by brokerage firms because <laughs> there's no commission in following them, which means in addition to being statistically superior investments, they're underfollowed with less competition. Our Boot camps, uh, moving on to the information product, are eight or eight and a half hour long virtual sessions. They are really deep dives. They are not for tourists. They're for real speculators. And we try to cover various topics. We've done uranium, silver, royalty and streaming, uh, development stage companies. We really try to give investors the background that they need to do securities analysis themselves or to understand the methods by which other people are doing securities analysis for them. Our boot camps uh, require between eight and eight and a half hours of attention, but importantly, the recordings of the boot camps are available to subscribers for a year because it's impossible for you to absorb in eight hours all of the material that we're going to force into you. The charge to attend the boot camp is $99. And like every educational product offered up by Rural Investment Media, there is a 100% gold-plated money-back guarantee. If you think for any reason that the material that you received is not worth 99 US dollars, email me and we will give you a refund, no questions asked. Well, Rick, let's also talk about another event that you have coming up in July, July 7th through 11th, and that is the Rural Natural Resource Investing Symposium uh, in Boca Raton, Florida. This is an annual pilgrimage where you bring in a lot of great thinkers, a lot of great companies. Talk to us about this event in Boca in July. When you say annual, by the way, it's almost 30 years old. If it isn't 30 years old, it's happened for a very long time. Uh, I humbly believe that the Rural Symposium is the finest natural resource investment symposium on the planet, the very best. Uh, it has stood the test of time, first of all. How has it stood the test of time? Well, we assemble great big picture thinkers, the Jim Rickards, the Doug Casey's, the Nomi Prins, the Grant Williams, the Daniela DiMartino Booths, people who talk to you about the world, the way the world really is, not the way that the Joe Bidens or the Justin Trudeau's or the World Economic Forum or the CBC would have you believe. Once that worldview has been well-established, and by the way, it's a very atypical worldview, we bring together the finest analysts and portfolio managers in the natural resource space, people who have been successful in resource investing for 30 years, not parachuted in analysts that have failed in technology and failed in consumer products and probably failed in crypto too, but people with two and three decades of success in natural resource investing. Importantly, we have for 30 years introduced investors to what we call the living legends. These are small groups of entrepreneurs who have each individually built 
public natural resource companies worth billions of dollars from a standing start. These entrepreneurs tell you how they achieved what they achieved and their lessons uh, have been invaluable to them as investors and can be invaluable to you too. Another feature of the conference that I think is unique to my conference is that any public company exhibitor at my conference has to be owned in an account owned or managed by me. Now, sadly, there's no guarantee that because I buy a stock, it's going to go up in price. The guarantee is that every exhibitor at my conference is vetted. At every other conference I know of on the planet, the qualification to be an exhibitor is a check that passes. That's it. At my conference, the attendees have told me that the exhibitors are content too. So all of the exhibitors are vetted. Finally, again, and by the way, you can attend this conference live, which I would prefer uh, in Boca Raton. There's a lot of nonverbal communication that you miss if you aren't attending live, but you can also attend from the comfort and convenience of your own home or your own office. We have live streamed the conference. In either circumstance, the recordings of the conference will be available to live attendees or live stream uh, attendees so that the information which is shared at the conference, four days of information, will be available to you to uh, absorb uh, over time, which you'll need to do. Uh, again, whether you uh, attend in person, which I would prefer, or via live stream, the tuition uh, for the conference, if you don't think you got your money's worth, is 100% recoverable. Email me, say, Rick, for whatever reason, I don't think I got my money's worth and I'll give you your money back. Now, I need to tell you, Corey, I've been making this money back guarantee for 30 years around my educational products. And I've had to, ref I've had to refund about one quarter of 1% of the tuition charged. Nonetheless, I am so comfortable, uh, so proud, frankly, of the content that we're producing that I absolutely positively am able to confidently guarantee your money back if you aren't delighted with the, the information products. Well, I appreciate that very much, Rick. As I said, I will be posting links to each of those conferences so everyone listening can sign up, whether it is in person for the Boca Raton conference or virtual for either. You can take part and you can, as Rick said, learn a lot at these conferences. I've seen you at a number of them, Rick. So, Rick, thank you so much for taking time with us on this weekend show. I'm sure we'll be chatting next month. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Gentlemen, I'm delighted to share this time with you. Thank you so much. Al Corlin's firm, A.B. Corlin & Associates Incorporated, provides consulting services to public companies on matters of regulatory compliance. To find out more, follow the link from www.kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back after this brief timeout. All right, welcome back. Continuing to listen to the weekend edition of the KE Report. I hope everybody enjoyed that more extended interview with 
Rick Rule. We are going to continue to focus more on the resource sectors. We are now chatting with Jesse Felder, founder and editor of the Felder Report. Now, Jesse, usually we talk more macro data, some economics, as well as tie it into the markets. But I want to stick to more of the resource sector here. And I want to start off with the gold mining stocks. It was a couple of years ago that you coined the term the bang stocks, which referred to Barrick, Agnico, Newmont, Gold Corp as what could take over from the high-flying tech stocks. Now, the problem that we have seen, unfortunately, recently is that gold continues to hang right around $2,000. It has made a couple all-time weekly and monthly and quarterly closing highs. However, these bang stocks, the major miners, they continue to struggle. These majors, uh, some are either at or near 52-week lows. Well, I think a lot of other investors are looking at other sectors saying, look at the markets. The markets are doing well. Jesse, make sense of this. Why are the gold stocks in this higher gold price environment still broadly ignored, it seems like? Well, I think we have to to really uh, dial down into what what is working well. And literally the only thing that's working well right now are AI stocks. The relative performance of everything else is pretty terrible. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about look at the small caps, right? Small cap perform relative performance has been horrendous. But you know, you could you you look at all of the cyclically sensitive stocks within the market and it's and it's the same thing. Essentially, I think what what we've seen, is the markets have fully come to we've had you know magnificent seven working well but mainly even within those it's been nvidia and microsoft the ones that are ai focused that have done well things like you know tesla has rolled over you know pretty hard apple has struggled alphabet disappointed um so even some of the magnificent seven are starting to to struggle some but i think what we've done over the last really six to nine months in this in the stock market or just markets generally is fully price in uh, this soft landing narrative where inflation comes down to the Fed's target without creating a recession, right? So we're not, we're taking hard landing off the table. We're not gonna see a recession and we're not going to see persistent inflation. This is what the kind of the markets have come to discount. So if you believe that, right, how do you express that view as an investor? You say, okay, great, well, I'm gonna buy all these high flying tech stocks because interest rates are going to come way down again and we're going back to that pre-pandemic paradigm where what works are the the fastest growing stocks in the market and the valuations continue to go to to the moon because the discount rate is so low Uh, at the same time why do i need to own anything that acts uh, typically as a hedge against higher inflation or a hedge against a hard landing in the economy you know things like um you know precious metals you know, or or any of these uh, anything else for that matter, um, you know, that that might do well under, uh, you know, a, a non soft landing. So I really think that, that helps kind of explain what's driven driven the markets is we've now fully priced in a soft landing. And we, you know, with this CPI report this week, we're starting to see, you know, kind of some chinks in the armor of that that narrative. Well, Jesse, it is a great point that there really isn't an impetus for people to jump into something like precious metals if they believe that the Fed can take a victory lap, that we've tamed inflation and that we have the soft landing narrative. Also, with the indexes, the S&P, the Dow and the Nasdaq shooting to all time highs, there's just not a lot of reasons for people to jump into gold equities. You made the point before this call, though, that the three most hated sectors are 
the precious metals, the energy space, and Chinese equities. So maybe tie that in too, just that it's it's not only uh, something that people aren't paying attention to, they almost just don't even like these sectors at all right now. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's one question I like to ask myself regularly is it's almost kind of a snow white thing, so a mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the most hated stock of them all, you know? And because you usually get uh, some interesting opportunities when you, when you think about that. I think for me, it's a three-way tie between these 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 three things. It's the precious metals mining uh, mining stocks. It's uh, oil and gas producers. The uh, you know Chinese Chinese equities. All three of these have gotten to the point where investors consider them uninvestable. You know, and, and that's usually a very good contrarian signal, very bullish signal that everybody who's wanted to sell these things is pretty much had the opportunity and now sold them. And there's not a lot of sellers left out there. And so what does that mean? It means any types of you know changes you know in these narratives um, that something a little bit less bearish, a little bit something you know more bullish is going to change sentiment towards these things and, and change the investor you know demand for them and people you know start start buying them and, and that's how you form a bottom in, in in these these kinds of things. So you know I think just from purely a sentiment standpoint, you know, they, they look very attractive from a valuation standpoint. You know, I'm looking at stocks that trade, you know, literally two and a half times enterprise value to EBITDA in the energy space. I mean, incredibly cheap, seven, eight times free cash flow uh, for some of the bigger, bigger majors, which is ridiculous to get, you know, 12, 13 percent, you know, free, free cash flow yield. Uh, amazing when the broad stock market is trading at, a, you know, a Schiller Cape ratio of 30 plus. So I, I think there's, you know, we, we're, we could be at a, an important inflection point here where if we start to see more uh, kind of, like I said, chinks in the armor of this soft landing narrative, we start seeing maybe more signs that inflation is persist, more persistent than investors expect, like, like the recent CPI report, or, you know, more evidence that we could be, that a uh, hard landing is, is uh, more likely than markets currently price. You'll see a shift in demand in these things, right? I mean, you know, it, it, the CPI report, I thought, was very, very bullish for things like the energy space and precious metals space. That if it turns out inflation is persistent and the Fed, you know, hasn't done enough, investors are going to need to own more things like energy and precious metals to to hedge against that risk. Let's balance this out then, Jesse, because again, precious metals prices, or at least the gold price, is doing okay. And the oil price, it, it's been flat, kind of boring in a sense, but it, it's still in the 70s, but it's the underlying stocks that aren't doing well. And when you look at the gold miners, is there anything these gold mining companies can do to change the perception? Because if we do see inflation tick back up, it's been one of the arguments we've heard over and over and over again is that inflation is hurting these gold miners because it's causing their prices to rise. So they're not getting that margin expansion. Yeah, well, the, what we're likely to move towards, and I think, you know, we had some talk about this when inflation really started to pick up, you know, a couple of years ago. But I think that if we do see another wave of inflation, and I think that's a real possibility now with signs of a wage price spiral, right? We, we saw this in the, in the latest CPI report that super core inflation is, you know, very strong. 
which suggests that the rise in goods inflation created this, you know, kind of uh, a need for employees to say, I need a raise. And now that raise rising wages is creating kind of a, you know, a, a positive feedback loop for inflation. It's going to create a situation where Either the Fed has to keep rates you know, elevated much longer than people expect, which raises the prospect of a hard landing for the economy, right? If the Fed has to keep rates at five and a half throughout this year, and with the rising you know, problems we're seeing in commercial real estate and the banking sector and things, and with as much re- debt needs to you know, be, be refinanced, the prospect of a hard landing just continues to grow. But at the same token, you know, if if inflation proves more, you know, the opposite of transitory, which is very persistent and stubborn and difficult to deal with, and it looks like the, you know, the the Fed is going to have to raise rates higher to deal with it, there's going to be a real problem because the the federal government can't afford higher interest rates. The federal government can't even afford for rates to stay very much like a lot of these private sector, you know, borrowers can't afford to refinance debt at current interest rates, that we're running into an area like this with the federal government as well. And so we might be forced to, into a situation where the where inflation remains persistent and the Fed has reached its limits of its abilities to deal with it. That is the ultimate bull case for precious metals. That's the type of thing that would, when people start to get an inkling of this, uh, we're going to see precious metals really take off to the upside. So that's what I talk about, the soft landing narrative. We, if Once people start to really come around to the idea that inflation is 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 more stubborn, you know, the gold price is, is, has just a ton of potential upside in front of it. And, and, and you know, to think the, the, the relative performance of the miners, we talked about this last time you had me on a month ago, the relative performance in the short run, of the miners relative to the gold price. I'm talking over weeks and and months, not over multiple years, but over the short run, that relative performance is a very good sentiment signal in itself. It really tracks very closely to uh, the uh, discount to the net net asset value of something like the Sprott physical gold and silver closed end fund, which now trades at, you know, I think five and a half, six percent discount to its underlying assets, which it was a very clear signal that sentiment in the precious metal space is about as bearish as it's been at any point over the past 10 years. So to me, that that explains the relative performance of the miners too. The miners relative to the metal are very, very weak. That's a very strong sentiment signal that uh, investors have gotten far too bearish. And and as we if we move forward through this year, and as I say, it, it show we find that inflation is not going to come down back to the Fed's target as easily as people expect. That's going to be very bullish for the gold price. Yeah, Jesse, I think there are people in the industry that have said this is not just the worst sentiment that they've seen in the disconnect between the gold equities and the gold price, but some of the craziest valuations when you look at what ounces in the ground are being valued at, when you look at how producers are being valued, when you look at development stage companies, it's a pretty big divorce since a lot of this seems to depend on if inflation will be sticky or not and how that will affect the soft landing narrative and the Fed policy. Let's just quickly get your thoughts on where inflation is coming from and why it may be stickier, because most people, Jesse, attribute to inflation to an increase in the money supply. But then during the pandemic, we heard all about supply chain issues. But there's also all of the fiscal spending that was going on during the pandemic that was fueling that where they were sending people checks 
and sending businesses during the payment protection plan checks. So all that money was finally circulating, which we hadn't seen in the prior decade as all the money printing was going on. Is it money printing? Is it supply chain issues? Is it something else going on that's driving inflation? Is it wage growth? What's driving inflation and what may cause it to be stickier? Well, I think the most important factor driving inflation right now may be the de- trend towards deglobalization, right? This this idea that we don't necessarily want to ship all of our jobs over to China any longer, which is something we've done, you know, for 40 years now, and especially really in the last 20 years, that trend accelerated, the offshoring of production. That was probably the single greatest disinflationary uh, factor for the economy of all of them. I mean, right, people point to technology and, you know, technology prices come down consistently. But I think it was really cutting labor costs that really allowed disinflation to persist in the way that it has over the last 20 years. So when you start to say now, okay, now we don't want to produce in China because there are geopolitical risks and all kinds of things. And and frankly, political risks here in the United States of, of uh, you know, this the, the growth, growth towards populist politicians is is purely in reaction to Americans being unhappy with the fact that, uh, you know, the middle class has been shrinking for so long. And it's a, a big part of that trend is the offshoring of labor. So the trend towards deglobalization, reshoring of production, these types of things puts great strains on uh, the, the labor market and helps to boost wages at the same time that we have the baby boom generation retiring. So you have this demographic side of it also. So the labor force is shrinking relative to the overall size of the population at the same time as we want to ramp up production. So all of this is puts a huge demand on uh, wages and the, and the labor force. And so I think that's probably what we're seeing in things like super core inflation, which are showing you know a huge jump in essentially wages in service in the services sector of the economy. So I think that's probably the, the biggest factor that's going on, just demographics and deglobalization. That's a long-term trend, but it's it's really kind of making itself uh, felt right now. And that really makes this, this inflation a lot stickier than, than just a gumming up of supply chains kind of thing like we saw during the pandemic. Yeah, very interesting, Jesse. We definitely have seen some of the baby boomer generation post-COVID, even during COVID, leave the workforce, walk away. And that's what we were saying. Hey, younger people needed to get some of the better jobs. And well, here we are now. Let's talk a little bit more about China, because look, China's probably one of the worst performing markets out there. Like you said, some of the worst performing sectors. We can look at China broadly, their market. They're having a housing market issue. Their, their stock market is doing horribly. Their economic data is not doing well. Any chance China turns it around anytime soon? You know, I think that that uh, that, that also represents another inflation risk, right? Uh, I, I think, you know, we maybe don't appreciate enough how much the economic weakness in China has helped bring the Fed bring inflation, you know, back down over the last um, couple of years or last year, especially that, you know, China's weak economy means, you know, weak demand for, uh, you know, commodities and, and uh, you know, lower price pressures around the world. So if the Chinese economy does get its act together, if if they start to turn that thing around and create more demand for, for, for commodities 
and price pressures, you know, I mean, turn from outright deflation back to even just, you know, flatline, let alone even, you know, small amounts of inflation, that could exacerbate these other inflation issues that we're talking about. So I think, you know, the, the bearish sentiment towards China is more than expressed in its equity prices. You see single digit PE ratios, right? They're big tech stocks, you know, even there, you know, which are very similar to the, you know, big tech stocks here in the United States that are so popular with investors trade at, you know, the widest discount to their American peers in history, right? By far, you know, you have a stock like Alibaba that trades, I think, you know, eight times earnings or something, you know, when Amazon trades 80 times. Uh, And so, it's a huge disconnect there, and it's a huge opportunity, I think, uh, for investors who are willing to to be contrarian. Well, let's talk about one more contrarian space, and that is the energy sector, Jesse. We've talked about the three hated sectors being gold, Chinese equities, and the energy space. We've alluded to gold in China there, but on the equity side of the oil and gas industry, you mentioned the producers were not seeing very good valuations, but we've also seen oil stuck in a rut for really a long time now. It's been range trading between, let's say, the the mid-60s and the mid-80s for years. There was that breakout in 2022, and it got up to 125 oil, and nat gas got up to nine, almost $10. But since then, not only has the energy prices corrected, but the energy equities have corrected. How do you see the setup for the balance of the year? Are there opportunities here, or is it just going to be stuck in molasses? I think, you know, it's very interesting, and I don't ever really kind of advocate for investors to kind of go copycat, um, you know, the big successful players. But I think it's interesting to look at what Warren Buffett has been doing over the last year or two. They've been selling down pretty much everything in the Berkshire Hathaway investment portfolio except for one thing. They've been buying 20 to 30 million shares of Occidental Petroleum every quarter for the last two years. Right. That's pretty much all Berkshire's been buying is energy. So you have the most successful legendary investor alive, right, who's clearly bullish on only one thing, and that's oil and gas producers. And then you have insiders at these companies who are continuing to buy shares. I mean, energy infrastructure stuff, you could still buy with that as, you know, a double digit dividend yield and some of the MLPs and things. Right. You you get, you know, four, you know, four percent on a 10 year treasury. You can get 11, 12% in some of these MLPs, it's kind of uh, mind boggling to me. But even just in, you know, the oil and gas producers, like I said, some of the smaller players, there's one in particular, I'm, I, you know, I look at High Peak Energy, where, uh, you know, CEO has been buying, you know, significant amounts of stock trades, two and a half times enterprise value to EBITDA. And they've been growing production. They've been actually growing EBITDA over the last couple of years, even with the oil price coming down. So it just tells you how hated um, this sector is when you have, you know, like a stock like High Peak or Oxy, you know, which which Berkshire's, Berkshire's been buying, that literally trades seven and a half times free cash flow in, in one of the most expensive stock markets we've seen. So, uh, you know, I, these are the types of opportunities I I look for. Things that are hated by the average investor, hated, you know, clearly where bearish sentiment is just off the charts, and you have super smart investors and insiders. Um, you know, continuing to kind of back up the truck and, and increase exposure. To me, um, it's, it's a, a, you know, very in, indicative of interesting opportunities. 
All right, Jesse, I want to bring this full circle just for a quick comment back on gold here. You outlined a number of reasons as to why you think gold, there could be just more investment interest in gold here. What's a possible price target for gold? How much higher could gold go? Well, I'm looking back. There's there's a, a price analog. If you just overlay the last bull market from 2000. You know, one, two to 2011. Just overlay that price chart over the bull market we've seen from 2016 or something. It suggests that this, for me, the price analog has been eerily accurate. Right? It's it's essentially the 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 uh, the, the echoes in terms of when price should move and when price should consolidate. It's been just like what we've saw in that previous bull market. So, you know, we're kind of in a, a another consolidation phase right now. But it suggests that you know we're, we're we could be very close to another big boom. Uh, another uh, interesting price analog I look at and we've talked about before is, is uh, that 2018 to 2020 2021 timeframe. You just kind of match up you know where we are in the monetary cycle right last time the fed was raising interest rates jay powell was raising interest rates into 2018 um, gold price bottomed in in fall of 2018 and turned higher before the powell pivot in the late 18 early 19 and we're kind of in a very similar time frame now where you know uh gold price bottomed five six months ago ish uh and now we're kind of We've seen that, you know, Powell has said we're we're pretty much done with rate hikes. We're just waiting on when it's time to start cutting. The Fed started cutting in 19 or, you know, reversed QE in 19 in reaction to the repo fiasco. The longer they keep interest rates here at this five and a half, the closer we're going to get to some type of uh, episode like that, which forces another major pivot in monetary policy. So I think it's very interesting to look back at that 2019 timeframe as to what what is gold price going to do over the next 12 to 24 months, because it's probably something like it did in 19 when we did run into problems with with uh, interest rates being too high for too long. All right, Jesse, thank you very much for your time. It's always interesting chatting with you. And hey, I appreciate our monthly calls. So We will chat again next month. Everybody, thanks for tuning in to this weekend's edition of the KE Report. Just a reminder, go back through the week on our website, kereport.com, and podcast The KE Report to listen to all the daily editorials and company updates we recorded throughout the week. I hope you all have a great rest of your weekend. For our upcoming appearance schedule, visit kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back in just a moment.